The first five books of the Old Testament are called the what? I'm hearing, I'm hearing whispers. Septuagint, what else? Torah. Pentateuch. And the law. Okay, so there's different, different, uh, different terms, but the Pentateuch is the first five, Penta, first five books of the Old Testament, and it is the book, the books of the law. All right, it's the foundation upon which the children of Israel based everything, everything. It's 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 the foundation. It's the building block. It's uh, the Pentateuch is uh, it's like their constitution. It's like their marriage covenant. It's their systematic theology. It's their comprehensive philosophy of who they are as individuals and as a nation. It's all these things together. So it, the Pentateuch is, was incredibly important. It wasn't just, uh, let me forgive the term, it wasn't just books of the Bible with, with principles to kind of shape our life. It was, it was truly the foundation by which their society was built upon. It was the foundation upon uh, their identity. It was a foundation upon their security. It was a, a foundation upon their worship and their, and their connection with God. It was comprehensive. And essentially, the following 34 books of the Old Testament is really just the playing out of the nation of Israel's uh, uh, life and history based on how they did or did not follow the law. So the Pentateuch is incredibly important because everything that we see in the Old Testament and then leading to the, leading to the New Testament is really built upon what is established in those first five books. So the book of Genesis establishes some, some pretty simple yet comprehensive things like that there is a God, for example, and that that God is the creator God. Genesis also establishes the covenant that God has made with his specific people. That, that there is an identified group of people that God has said, you are mine, and I am your God, that you're my chosen ones, you're my chosen people, and that God makes a covenant with Abraham in, in the middle of Genesis, and it says, I will be your God, and you will be my people, and then I will prosper you, I, I will wash over you, that, that you're, you, you will grow to be a mighty nation. And then we saw two weeks ago that God showed different prophecies that they would live for 400 years in a foreign land and that that they would multiply and as as many look at the stars and if you can count them that's how many people your nation will be he made this promise to one man and so as the book of genesis which is kind of the foundation of the foundation uh of the pentateuch the book of genesis goes through and tells the story of god and the covenant that he has made with man abraham begat isaac isaac begat jacob and Jacob had 12 sons, all right, which becomes the 12 tribes of Israel. And so the book of Genesis ends, and the book of Exodus begins, and it begins, and it, it, it continues the historical timeline of those 12 sons. And so at the very beginning of Exodus, it says the 12 sons of, of Jacob are, and it lists them, and it says including Joseph. If you remember Joseph with the, uh, the coat of many colors, um, and then it follows in the very beginning of Exodus, it goes through and it says um, in verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 7, the people of Israel were fruitful, and they increased greatly, and they multiplied, and they grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. So in the first couple of verses of Exodus, we see that the nation of Israel becomes the nation of Israel. It goes from 12 brothers 
to a nation, which we find out, I think, in chapter 12. Yeah, Exodus 12, 37, that the nation is 600,000 men strong, which most scholars would agree is 2 million people. So we see the establishment of a nation in the first couple sentences of the book of Exodus. We also see in the book of Exodus that it, it unpacks itself as a, a beautiful narrative of how God keeps his promises and provides for his chosen ones. He keeps his promises and provides for his chosen ones. Um, when my grandfather passed away, his name was Amos. It's a good granddad name, isn't it? Um, how many of you have good granddad names out there? It seems like there's an older generation. Um, so Amos Beach, <laughs> Papa to me. Uh, when, when, when Papa passed away, we were all gathered at Nana and Papa's house. Uh, and we had the funeral, and we kind of came back. Uh, he died in the Lord. And we had this unexpected, organic storytelling time. It, it wasn't intentional, but we all just sat in the living room and just told stories about Papa. And, I mean, I only knew Papa as Papa. I didn't know him as a younger younger man. But what I, one, of the th one of the stories I remember, and this was five years ago, Lauren, we were married, right? Um, Lauren was sitting with me. She was, we were newly married, so didn't, she didn't know my family that well. And I don't think I had met Papa face-to-face. -face. Um, but we're telling stories, and my aunt, Papa's daughter, Marsha, my Aunt Marsha. How many of you have an Aunt Marsha? Anybody? Where does she live? Just kidding. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> Aunt Marsha told a story about how she heard on the radio when she was a little child that a, uh, a convict was on the loose. When I think we've maybe all heard that at some point in our childhood, that, you know, so beware. And as a young child, it's, it's, it scared the hooey out of her. You know, she envisioned that there was this armed and dangerous uh, ex-con, I mean, it might have been armed and dangerous, I don't, but she said she was really, really scared and was kind of beside herself with, 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 with fear. And she told a story about how her dad just kind of held her and just said, um, everything is going to be okay, but we can trust our Heavenly Father. We can trust him. He's trustworthy. And, and comforted her with the gospel and shared the gospel with her, and that's how she came to faith. I'd never heard that story before. And so it was, it was you know, sitting around in a living room hearing stories of the faithfulness of, of a man kind of builds the understanding of who Papa was. Does that make sense? So it's not necessarily something that I knew about him or his backstory. I knew him as a good man, as a godly man, as, as a great, as a great um, grandpa. But to hear other further stories of, of his past that kind of proved who he was and proved how he worked and proved how he dealt with people and proved how he displayed the gospel and proved how he pointed people to the cross. Does that make sense? And so... It, similarly, the book of Exodus is a, is a beautiful narration of how God works and how God deals with his people. And it is incredibly valuable for us to understand those things. So if, if Papa were alive right now, I would probably be able to interact with him in different ways because of my greater and greater understanding of, of how he has uh, behaved and acted in the past, even the past before I existed, you know? 
my aunt Marsha is obviously much older than me. She's my dad's age, and so I don't have I don't have memories of that interaction. I don't have memories of that pop up. But understanding those past histories, understanding those past interactions, builds how I understand Papa. And in the same way, that builds how we can understand our God, because that history is our history. So we need to understand the narrative of Exodus, because it is the story of God keeping his promises to his people and his provision for his people. Incredibly important. What we see is not only promises made by God in Genesis, but we see the trustworthiness of God is proven through those promises kept. They're proven through those promises kept. It's not only proven, but Exodus provides the root and the foundational evidences, the foundational proofs upon which God has established that, look, I'm keeping my promises, and you can remember this specifically as a proof to my promises. Because later in Genesis, or later in Exodus, we're going to look how God says, remember this, remember this. So you remember my covenant, but then remember my keeping of the covenant. So later down the road, you can look back and say, I remember the covenant, but then I also remember the keeping of the covenant. So it's not just a promise that is made, and then you're left on your own to just kind of wander and bumble around and think, hmm, is this going to happen? Of course, I believe him, but it's those proofs and those proofs that I can see that you're trustworthy. I can see it over and over that you're trustworthy. And I can go back and depend on that. This is important. This is fundamentally important for you as a believer. This is fundamentally important for, for all believers because a promise that is forgotten cannot be trusted, right? It just kind of makes sense. If somebody in the distant past made a promise and that you are unaware of that promise, you can't, you can't trust in it. You can't have faith in it. And if you can't have faith in a promise, then you can't have the hope for what that promise has promised. And where there is no faith, there is no salvation. None. And so you have to know the promise so that you can put faith in the promise. And you have to have faith so that you can have hope for salvation. And if you remove those things, then you, what you have is you have hopelessness. And the, and the crazy thing is, is what the, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself here, but the, the, I'll come back to that. <laughs> a promise forgotten is a promise that can't be trusted. And you can't have faith in a promise that you don't know. And, and without faith, there is no hope. And, with, and without, with hope, you're hopeless. That's true for the children of Israel, and it's true today. So why are these things fundamentally important? Because it's fundamentally the gospel. Exodus. So understanding and trusting the examples of God's faithfulness, trusting the historical proofs, and trusting that Exodus is essentially showing our faith in our God, just like it was uh, required of the Israelites to have faith in their God. Because the book of Hebrews chapter 13 verse 8 says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. So therefore, understanding Jesus yesterday is vitally important. Understanding Jesus yesterday helps us understand Jesus today. And what we see is we see Jesus in Exodus, which we'll get to later in our series. I can trust that Lauren loves me because we made a covenant on August 20th, 2011, when we, when we vowed together in marriage. 
But what feeds that covenant, what gives gas to that covenant, what gives, what gives motivation, what gives, what gives fuel to the flame of that covenant is that I see her faithfulness. I see it played out. I see, I see it acted upon. And so that when I seek to live my life as a godly man, as a godly husband, and I reflect back on our covenant, I do reflect back on our, on our marriage, covenant of marriage vows. But what gives motivation, what gives proof, what gives security, what gives hope is the fact that I have seen her be faithful to that covenant. And that's what God does. And the whole idea of marriage in, in Scripture and the covenant between God and man is just screaming in Scripture. And so we need to see some of these things and look back at the book of Exodus, even though it's old and it's ancient and it's, it's old covenant and it's, 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 it's a different people group that there, there, are, there are parallels that are not just, hmm, that's similar. It, it's the same. It's the same. So we have to understand how God has kept his promises so that we can more effectively trust his promises. So with that being said, as kind of the background, as the foundation, <clears throat> I'm going to take a few minutes and read our text. Now, it's, it's, it's a couple chapters, so we're going to start in chapter 1-1 one, one, and go through the middle of chapter uh, 4. And I'd like for you to follow along, and as I read this, I would like for you to process with me as you read. Don't just listen to the words coming in and out, um, but process as we take this and look at the themes that are running that we're going to continue to see through the book of Exodus. So this, this is not going to take uh, forever, but it's not a short reading either. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers in all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph, and he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with many burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramesses, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiphrah and the other Puah, Then when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if, a, if, you, if it is a son, you shall kill him. If it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. 
Then Pharaoh commanded all of his people. This isn't just the soldiers or the killing squad, but he commanded all of his people. Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman, and the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. And she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother, and Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And when the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son, and she named him Moses, because, she said, I drew him out of the water. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to, to his people and looked on their burden, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together, and he said to them, said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? And he answered, Who makes you prince or a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then, Pharaoh, then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs, filled the troughs to water their uh, father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and stayed with them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father Ruel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? And they said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. And he said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. And she gave him, she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Now during those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, and they cried out for help. Their cry to rescue, their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, <clears throat> the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight. Why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, he said, and he said, here am I. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing 
is holy ground. He said, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering, and I have come down to deliver them out of, the, out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of what out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to a place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign to you that, that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out from Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and they say, and then and say to them, The God of your father has sent me, <clears throat> and they ask me, what is, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent you, has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to this people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. <clears throat> and they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, and now please let us go a three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and I will strike Egypt with, with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold and jewelry and for clothing... And you shall put them on your sons and your daughters, and so you shall plunder the Egyptians. Chapter 4. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. And the Lord said to them, What is that in your hand? And he said, A staff. And he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground. It became a servant, and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, Put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac, the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put it back inside his cloak. And when he took it, behold, it was restored like the, like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, go or Excuse me, God said, or listen to the first sign, that they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs, or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile, 
and pour it on the dry ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said with him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you that you shall speak. Teach you what you shall speak. But he said, Oh, my Lord, please, saith someone else. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart, and you shall speak to him. And put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth, and with his mouth, and will teach you both what to say. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as a God to him. And take in your hand the staff with which you shall do these signs. Thank you for following with me there. <laughs> it's good for us to hear the story up to this point. Now, what we've done is we've, we've followed the story from the beginning of Exodus to 417, what happens next is they go to Egypt. So this is kind of the story leading up to the point where Moses returns to Egypt and begins the process of talking to Pharaoh, talking to the nation of Israel, and we see the plagues begin and such. And so we will discuss some of those things next week. What I want to look at this morning with the remainder of our time is simply four themes that we see and that will continue to recur throughout the book of Exodus in these first three and a half chapters. The first thing that we see here is that God is the one who raises and who levels kingdoms. We see this at the very beginning. We see it in the nation of Israel is just simply goes from nothing to something. We see that the nation of Israel is established by God. That he is the one <clears throat> that makes this happen. It goes from 12 brothers and 70 people to a nation of, of 2 million. The God actually works this process within the nation of Egypt to grow them as a nation. They were not always slaves. There was a time when they had favor in the eyes of the Egyptians. There was a time when uh, Joseph was the second in command. There was a time when there was an alliance. That time changed, we saw, but that God established the nation of Israel. And essentially, when you look historically, you can see and make the connections that God is the one that made Egypt, Egypt. Of course, we understand that, being believers, that God is the one who is at work anyway. But God is the one who gave Joseph the dreams 400 years ago to establish uh, seven years' worth of storehouses because there was a great famine in the land. And so back when Jacob and his sons were not in Egypt, there was a great famine and people were starving to death. People were starving to death to death but you know what the word went out that there is there's food in Egypt everybody that is the place where we can find hope that is the place where we can find salvation because we are drying up in this weary land and it wasn't the fact that Egypt was was fertile it was the fact that God placed Joseph there to be a resource to his children and then Egypt just reaped the benefits basically of being used by God and so the nations were going to Egypt and building up, and they were running there saying, you have this leader, you have these resources, and built themselves a reputation in the ancient culture. We also see um, later in the book of Exodus that God is the one that levels Egypt. 
So God is the one that raises nations, and God is the one that brings them down. God established the nation of Israel, and he will make them, uh, allow them to fall because of their sin. God is the one who has established the nation of Egypt, and God is the one by his hand, I mean, almost literally, that comes down and strikes the nation of Egypt. So God is the one who is at play throughout the course of all of time. Now, we see this here. We see it throughout the course of the Old Testament. We see it in the New Testament. We see it in modern history. We see it right now. That God is the one who's in charge. He always has been. He has been the one who is, who is behind America, is the one who is behind Rome, allowing up and down, up and down. Not us, not the dictators, but God is the one who allows nations to rise and allows nations to fall. So God is the one. I'm going to have this up. There are four themes that we're going to see. The first is that some would say rise and fall. the one who allows the rise and the fall of nations. The second thing that we see um, is that God's judgment of evil will come in God's timing. We see this throughout the course of the Bible, uh, but it is the very rare thing that God's judgment falls immediately. God's judgment typically comes after much mercy has been given. Um, Egypt turned on the nation of Israel. It's interesting how when you look at chapter 1, in verse 8, it says, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. It takes one generation to forget so the, the Pharaoh before knew Joseph and that he was a good ruler, that he was the reason why Egypt survived the great famine of 08 or whatever year it was. Uh, like he was, he was the reason why they, they took years in advance to build storehouses and to accumulate grain, to accumulate food, and then suddenly they were the ones that were raking in the wealth because the nations were willing to pay whatever it would take to survive. And eventually a king came who didn't remember. One generation. I mean, are we there today? Millennials. Millennials. <laughs> Don't remember. And what's interesting, though, is that God has, has made the call to remember. Chapter 3, verse 14. Go there. God, chapter 3, verse 14. God has said to Moses, I am who I am. He said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say, to this, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Because if you forget the promises, you can't be saved. And, you know, I, what we see here, the, the, the flip side of this is it only takes one generation to remember. And that's called revival. <laughs> and so whether it's ancient Egypt or 2016, somebody pops up on the scene and doesn't remember the goodness of God, whether they're pagan or chosen, 
And what happens is sin left unchecked just gets worse. And so they're a pagan nation, Egypt, but they're still kind of existing with memory of Joseph. But one guy steps onto the throne and doesn't remember, and he turns evil. It goes from pagan to evil. And what's the difference there? I, you, you get what I'm saying. It, it goes from, okay, we're, we're cohabitating together as two different nations under one, in one country, but now you are our slaves. And now we are murdering your babies. And now we're not letting you eat, and you have to build stuff for us. And there's groaning that happens now by the children of Israel. And there is, there is weeping that is happening now because sin left unchecked just, just tanks. And what we see throughout the course of Scripture is that God judges evil, that God always judges sin, but it's always in his timing, always in his timing. So God's judgment will come. We just don't know exactly when and how. And so we must be careful to not interpret the times as evil has won the day. That we must be careful not to interpret times that, that God's promises won't come true. That we, we must be careful not to interpret the times that we're just living in this totally godless culture. No, God is there. And God remembers and, 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 and God knows and God hears and God is present. But he is saying, really, this is a show of God's mercy, that there is still time to repent if you will only remember. You still have opportunity, people, Egypt, children of Israel, Canaanites. In the book of Genesis, we see that God says that there is a judgment that is coming on the Amorites, but their time has not yet come. And when you see in the, in the order of, 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 of time that that the judgment of the Amorites and the Amalekites, the Canaanites, comes hundreds of years later. But God is saying they, they have time, and they can still have opportunity. But sin left unchecked is a, is a spiral. And so we have to understand and we have to know that God will do what he said, that he will win the day, that evil will be judged, and that righteousness will win. But it must be based on the promises, and you have to remember the promises to put faith in them. Otherwise, you have no hope. And so we have people today that are, are, are hopeless because of our political climate. We have people that are hopeless because of the godlessness that we see. The people who are like this, there's no hope in, in our general election. There's no hope in our, our fellow man. We just got to kind of do the best that we can and kind of hold on and Lord, please come, whatever, whatever it may be. But it's kind of the same situation then and now. Uh, middle of your Bible is the book of Psalms. Um, so jump to Psalm 94. I still, as a 38-year-old man, hold my Bible open and look for the middle and open it. It's, it's usually Psalm. Book of Psalms, okay? God will judge. He will judge based on the laws that he has set. He, not he will not judge in the whims of man. He will not judge based on what we think about people who have it coming. He will judge on his laws and what he has established as the foundation, which is why it's important for us to know that foundation and know those promises and know what the law is, what God has asked of us. O oh Lord, verse 1, God of vengeance, 
O God of vengeance, shine forth, rise up. O judge of the earth, repay to the proud what they deserve. O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exalt? They pour out their arrogant words. All the evildoers boast. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They kill the widow and the sojourner and murder the fatherless abortion. And they say the Lord does not see, the God of Jacob does not perceive. Understand, O dullest of the people, fools, when will you be wise? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord knows the thoughts of man, that they are but a breath. Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law, to give him rest from days of trouble, until a pit is dug for the wicked. For the Lord will not forsake his people, he will not abandon his, his heritage, for justice will return to the righteous, and all the upright in heart will follow it. Isn't there hope there? So God will judge in his timing. A little side note here. Just as a, a, a moment of encouragement, back to, back to Exodus chapter 2. Chapter 1, um, we have the story of Shifra and Pula. Exodus is a narrative. All right? it's, a, it's, a, it's a broad stelling of, telling of, of, of major national events. And there's an unpacking of the beginning of the life of Moses because he's a major historical figure. Um, what in the world do, do Shifra and Pula have to do with anything? I mean, this is just a, a pause in the middle of a story and tells one kind of personal story of how the Egyptian authorities said, midwives, you need, to, you need to kill the baby boys. And they said, it says because they feared God, they didn't do it. And then it says that God... Um, uh, verse 20, it says, So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. Verse 21, And, the peop- and because the mid- midwives feared God, he gave them families. Now this is not a law, but a principle. Is that God hears and sees when you fear him in, in a good way. And that he blesses. And that he rewards Again, this is, this is a principle, not a law that you can say, hey, I've been good, so therefore, God, you owe me. But this is, this is God saying, I'm here, and, and I see what you've done. And every single one of us is going to be faced with moral and ethical decisions in our personal and professional lives. Maybe you did this week of, of living above reproach or just how you behave in a dating relationship, how you deal with your money. Um, how truthful you are, um, how you behave in the, in the secular workplace when everyone around you is not a Christ follower, that God sees and rewards and blesses. Uh, 
that he saw the acts of Shifra and Pua. Um, he saw how they behaved and how they feared the Lord. And, and he, was, he was gracious to them. Um, be encouraged as you face ethical and moral decisions daily. Um, the third thing that we see is that God hears the suffering, that he provides a way, and that he keeps his promises. That God hears, he provides, and he keeps. Uh, look at chapter 2, verse 23. He, uh, Exodus 2, 23. It says, During those many days the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, and they cried out for help, and their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. Verse 24. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. And this, is, this recurs even in these couple chapters, and will continue to recur throughout the, old, uh, the, the course of the Old Testament. That God hearing and God doing are really equal. It wasn't, this isn't a matter of 400 years passing by, and God was like, what is that distant groaning? Oh, I did make a covenant with it. No, that, that, that God has this plan that we don't know. We don't know anything about his plan except for what he has revealed. And what he has revealed is the promise. And the promise is what you trust. The promise is what you, you put your faith in. And that is what provides you with the hope that you can't find anywhere else. So that's, that's essentially all of it. We just don't know the inner workings. We don't know the ins and outs. We don't know... How, how or why God does the things that he does, but he does them, and that he can be trusted, that he has been proven to be faithful, that he provides for the people of Israel. He provided by allowing the children of Israel to plunder their captive, their um, enslavers. They got clothing, they got jewels, they got gold and precious metals from them so they could exist in the wilderness. God provided to Moses signs that said, if they don't believe you, then they'll believe this, which is me through you, the snake, the blood, the leprosy. He provided those things for him. He provided a mouth to speak when Moses said, I can't, I can't, I can't. He says, well, then I'm the one who made your mouth anyway, but I'm going to give you somebody else who could speak, but I'm still using you like I said. God provided and he provided and he provided. And one of the most beautiful things I think that, that I see it throughout studying this first three and a half chapters, is first of all, unfortunately, Moses was a murderer. He, 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 he was a murderer, truly a murderer. He wasn't a Robin Hood, okay? He broke the law, and the law went to look for him. And even his own brotherhood said, you're a murderer, okay? So this wasn't just a good guy looking out for uh, the kid getting beat up, all right? He, he murdered somebody, and then he ran away. He ran away to the land of Midian. Busted out my Bible atlas, you know, hey, where's Midian? You know where Midian is? It's the wilderness where they wandered for 40 years. Acts chapter 7 retells the story of Moses. And it says that um, after 40 years was when God appeared to him in the burning bush. Moses wandered for 40 years as a shepherd in the wilderness by God's hand 
bizarrely, I don't know how, I don't know why, but mysteriously showed Moses, the shepherd of God's two million people, the ins and outs of the land where they were going to wander for another 40 years. Isn't that crazy? You know where the burning bush was? Mount Sinai. That's where then, then Moses met with God to receive the Ten Commandments. That's where the law was given later. Moses, I, I got to think, was a defeated, I'm a refugee, I have legitimately done something uh, morally reprehensible by murdering somebody, and now I'm fleeing and living in another land, and I'm a, now a ho-hum shepherd. I mean, the shepherds that ran off Jethro's daughters at the well, they ran them off because they were hooligans. I mean, shepherds, even in Jesus' day, couldn't be called in to testify in court because they just couldn't be trusted. I mean, they were dirty people that, that were looked down upon. So Moses is fleeing. He was a murderer. He's in a foreign land. And then guess what? I'm a shepherd for decades. And then suddenly, I mean, he didn't have this foresight of like, my day's coming. You know, God's going to use me. I'm going to write the first five books of the Bible. That's the foundation for the whole entire nation of Israel. That's going to be the, the beginning of the process of fulfilling the great covenant of Jesus one day. He didn't know that. He was dirty. He probably smelled bad, you know, <laughs> and just thought, this is how it's going to end for me in exile. Until he saw that. What is that? A bush? And then, and then his future changed. And, you know, I always admire, even now, when I look at people who have a curveball thrown at them or tragedy thrown at them, and they respond with, I know God's working, I just don't know how. And God's working, I mean, if you're his child, he's working in your life. And it, I mean, it might be 40 years, I'm not, you're not going to be a prophet. We don't have those anymore, okay? Um, but where God uses you in a way that you see or maybe you don't see to, 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 to massively affect his kingdom and the eternal destination of souls. But it might take 40 years for you to get there, you know? It might take the next 10 years working a job that you're not real excited about. It might take the next 10 years of you being single and you'd rather not be. It might take... Uh, 15, 20, 30 years of you um, struggling with health. There's a promise. Getting choked up. I don't know why. <laughs> I don't. I don't know why because this is amazing. Um, so God hears and He provides and He keeps. Um, the whole time, the children of Israel were called to focus their attention on the promise, not on their current situation. Of course, the current situation comes into play, but the way you see the promise has everything to do with how you interpret the situation you're in right now. And so, you know, wherever you're at, how are you interpreting the promise, you know? Are you remembering that? Are you holding on to it? Entrusting it? Knowing that God is at work in mysterious ways that you don't know? You, you really can't know? You're not supposed to know. 
So God hears, keeps, and provides. we see is that Israel is provided with a shadow of the true coming fulfilled Messiah. What we see in the course of the Old Testament and through the New Testament is a, is a progressive revelation that we don't have now. We believe that with the completion of the Bible, the entire canon, the 66 books of the Bible, that God's revelation to man has been complete until the second coming of Christ. All right, but at this point in history, there was a continued revelation of, 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 of hints and shadows and, and, and veiled examples, veiled types of what this coming Christ, this coming Messiah is going to look like. Abraham didn't know that it was going to be the very son of God born as a baby in Bethlehem that was going to live a perfect life and die on a cross. Abraham didn't know that. He just knew that through the covenant, all the families of the earth would be blessed through him. He knew other things too, but he didn't know the entire picture. Moses didn't know. And what we see throughout the course of the Old Testament is that God continues to build the picture and the image of what that coming Messiah is going to look like. And he uses examples, he uses history, and he uses people as types, people as, as incomplete examples of what this Messiah is going to look like. A type is defined as this, something that is used as a pattern or a template. It's a foreshadow of something greater. It is a veiled, incomplete image of something larger, something better, something later to be more fully revealed. That's what a type is. And what we see in the book of Exodus is the rise of the great prophet Moses who is designed to be an example, veiled, an incomplete image, a, a shadow, a similarity of what one day is a greater fulfillment of Christ. Think of some of these examples. Think of, think of some of these uh, similarities between Moses and Jesus. Herod killed all the babies too. Because of fear. Moses was the great deliverer that was born and protected. Moses was sent by God to free his people, as was Jesus. Moses was charged to speak words of deliverance, as Jesus was. Moses was given great signs and miracles to prove that he was from God. That's what Jesus did. Even Moses said, please, not me, send somebody else. Luke chapter 22, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, remove this cup from me, but not my will. Yours be done. It is veiled and incomplete because, because Christ had perfect motivation, and Moses didn't. Christ was perfect. Moses was a proven sinner. But it is, a, it is a veiled image that's saying one day a complete Moses is coming. One day there will be somebody who is perfect 
that can fulfill these things. One day somebody is coming who will defeat your enemies and free you from real slavery, the slavery of the soul that has bound you to hell, that will free you eternally, the, the one that will, 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 will truly open the Red Sea and let you watch evil be killed because he will ultimately win the day. That he will be the one that will lead you to deliverance and you need to follow him. So we see the type shown in Moses of the coming of Christ. And this is just in the first three and a half chapters. Isn't that cool? So we see Moses. We see um, the example of Christ and the image, the veiled shadow, the template of what Christ will be through the man who leads two million people out of slavery into the promised land. Um, I'm looking forward to the this, this study and the series. I hope that you're encouraged from the word of God. Um, let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for your goodness to us. I thank you for your word, and I thank you that you hear. I thank you that we can trust your promises. I thank you that, Father, there is great hope, and I ask that you would help us to remember. Help us to remember what you have called us to, a life of repentance, a life of obedience, a life of joy that is found in your better and your higher ways. Father, help us to um, live our lives tomorrow, Monday, as we go back to school and back to work, uh, knowing that you are faithful, that you are trustworthy, not just because of our experiences in this, these 20 or 30 years that we've lived, but Father, we can look back at history and see the proofs that you have displayed on purpose so that we will remember Please help us with that. We need your help because we so quickly forget. I thank you for Jesus and the fulfillment of what we see in the New Testament. And it's in his name that we pray these things. Amen.